Welcome to Shiloh Church. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you are in the Jacksonville, Florida area, please join us for worship or watch our services online at shiloh.church. Thank you. Would you stand and get your copy of God's Word? Make your way to the Gospel of John, the New Testament. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Give us understanding that we will obey your word and keep it with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3. I'm going to be real deep today. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. Its ability to pop up anywhere and everywhere, from the mouths of little children to signs and football stadiums, makes it easily the most well-known passage in Scripture. Rightfully so. John 3.16 is a summary of a central message of the Bible. It is the little Bible, the miniature Bible. It is the gospel in a nutshell. All scripture is breathed out by God, but if you were to edit the Bible down to just one book, just the one chapter, just the one verse, and that one verse you leave is John 3.16. You would still have enough gospel to save the whole world. John 3.16 records the message that every human heart, whether it knows it or not, wants to hear, needs to hear. Three words. God loves you. St. Augustine was right. God loves each of us as if we were the only one to love. The point of John 3.16 is that God loves us, or is that the point? If the obvious point of John 3.16 is that God loves us. Why is there so much confusion about the love of God? On one hand, you have unsaved and unchurched people who live as if there is no God. 
but they'll quickly and confidently tell you, but God loves me anyway. <laughs> and then there are devoted followers of Jesus Christ who struggle with a sense of the love of God in their lives. With all of the publicity God's love gets from John 3.16, how is it that there is confusion and misunderstanding and error about the love of God? Let me pitch an answer to that question. Very early in my ministry, may have still been in my teens, in the beginning of my pastorate, Stumbled over a book which would become a bestseller. It was entitled, it is entitled, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Chapman argues that every person has a distinctive, unique way he or she communicates love. That every person has a different way in which that person naturally gives and or receives love. Words of affirmation, gift giving, physical affection, providing quality time. These are various love languages that Gary Chapman mentions in his book. And I've seen it fleshed out over the years as a pastor in counseling. Two persons come in, married, obviously love each other, but seems like they are ships passing in the night. He feels that uh, she doesn't, he shows his love, I should say, by working, slaving at a job he can't stand to make ends meet. She communicates love by the time he spends with her. So he feels unloved because she doesn't appreciate his bread-winning efforts, and she feels unloved because he doesn't spend enough quality time with her. They both love each other, but they are miscommunicating love. They are communicating love in different ways, and they are like ships passing in the night. Could that be the problem with John 3.16? Could it be that we misunderstand the love of God because we come to this text to see the fact of God's love, and this is not what it in fact is communicating? May I suggest to you that John 3.16 is not about the fact of God's love. It is about the manner of God's love. It is not about the truth of God's love. It is about the nature of God's love. It is not about the, it is not merely that God loves us. It is how God loves us. And I quickly want to dare suggest that you cannot experience the love of God until you learn God's love language. I think this is the embedded meaning of the text. Because the text doesn't merely say God loved. It says God so loved. Don't read that too fast and misinterpret that to say that this verse is saying God loved the world so much. This is not about the amount of God's love. It is about the manner of God's love. That word so simply means in this manner. Literally, John is saying this is how God loved us. God loved us in this way. How did God love us? Two words. 
he gay. And I suggest, I don't care how many signs you see over the freeway about John 3.16. I don't care how much you feel a warm fuzzy in your heart when you're in church. You'll never know the love of God until you unwrap the gift that he gave. God communicate his love by a gift. Are y'all in here with me? Look at the infinite worth of the gift. You know, it's a, it's a tacky thing to give somebody a gift and leave the price tag on it. But John says that's exactly what God did. He wanted you to know how he loved you. So he not only gave a gift, but here he leaves the price tag on the gift so that you'll know how much the gift costs God. God so loved the world that he gave. Not just any old thing. He gave his only son. This is time we need to go back to the King James, right? His only begotten son. Let me be technical for just a moment. The Greek word here is monogenes. Mono one. Genes, where we get the word genes from. The one gened one. Meaning the unique one. The one of a kind. The one and only. God didn't just reach on the shelf and take down something he had multiple copies of. When, when he wanted to show his love, he gave you something that's one of a kind. His only son. The word is used in Luke 7 verse 12 to tell us that the boy who died in name was the widow's only son. It is used in Luke 8 verse 42 to tell us that Jarius' sick little girl was his only daughter. Luke 9 38 uses the same word to tell us that the demon-possessed boy the father asked help with was his only son. In Hebrews 11 verse 17, the word monogenes is used to describe Isaac as Abraham's only son. That's an interesting reference because Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, but Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 says Isaac was his only son because God says, I don't count it if I don't give it to you. I don't count what you worked up on. I only count what I gave. The rest of the references are in John. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 verse 18 says, no one has seen God, but the only son who is at the Father's side, he has declared him. John 3 verse 18 says that whoever believes on him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only son of God. 
1 John 4 and 9, 4 and 8 says, God is love. And 1 John 4 and 9 says, in this was the love of God manifest to us, that God gave his only son that we might live through him. And here John says, God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only son. You see, all humanity are God's children because he created us. Christians are uniquely God's children through regeneration and adoption. But ultimately, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. You missed it. Let me try it another way. There's nobody like Jesus. Did you hear me? Nobody lived before they lived like Jesus. Nobody was born like Jesus. Nobody spoke like Jesus. Nobody worked like Jesus. Nobody loved like Jesus. Nobody died like Jesus. Nobody got up like Jesus. And ain't nobody coming back like Jesus. He is the one and only Son of God. But would you consider as well not only the infinite worth of the gift, but would you note the redemptive purpose of the gift? Why did he give this gift? To get that point, you got to connect text to context. Dr. A. Lewis Patterson used to say that words are like people. They are known by the company they keep. And so you can't just uh, look at the text. You got to look at what comes before it and after it to make sense of it in its proper context. And it's true with John 3.16. John 3.16 begins with a purpose clause for God. So love. That for, the preposition tells us that John is explaining the meaning of something. He's about to explain the reason for something, the purpose of something. This draws us back to the larger conversation in John 3 that Jesus is having with a civic religious leader named Nicodemus who came to talk to Jesus by night about religious stuff. And I guess Jesus was sleepy and didn't have time for all of that. And he says, listen, let me just bottom line this for you. You must be born again. Nicodemus was a religious scholar, but he didn't know how an old man could be born again. A part of Jesus' explanation is given in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. In the wilderness, Israel complained against God, and God became angry and judged their sins by sending fiery snakes into the camp of Israel. They bit many of the Israelites, and many of them died. They were talking about Moses, but once the snake showed up, they went to Moses for help <laughs> and asked Moses to pray for him. And Moses, a good man of God, prayed for him, even though they were just talking about him. God was going to give them a, another chance. He gave them an undeserved way of salvation. It's an interesting way. God told Moses, go make a bronzed snake, a bronzed serpent. Put it on a pole and lift it up. And then tell the Israelites that whoever looks to the lifted up bronzed serpent will be saved from death. 
when Nicodemus in John 3 wanted to know how to be born again, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Some foolishly take the point of this to mean that Jesus' nature changed on the cross from divine to demonic. That is not what the text is saying at all. Jesus' nature did not change at the cross. There are two comparisons, however, Jesus is making. One comparison is in the fact that Moses lifted up a bronzed serpent, which means it had gone through the fire. Jesus had been through the fire and was found blameless before God. You read Revelation 1, when John sees the glorified Christ, he says, I saw him with feet like burnished brass. You know what we do? We take that verse and we say, see there, that proves Jesus was a black man. <laughs> he had feet like brass. But, but, but that doesn't, that's not trying to tell us that Jesus was a, a black man. It's trying to tell us Jesus was a perfect man. He, he had gone through the fire and was blameless before God. And the second major comparison of the text is like that serpent, Jesus was lifted up. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When Carl Barth was asked what the most important word in the Bible was, he said the most important word is the Greek preposition hooper, means in the place of or on behalf of. And when he said hooper is the most important word, he is saying the most important truth of the scriptures is that when Jesus died at the cross, he died to take our place. Watch the eternal benefits and I'm through. Wes told me I had to wait tonight tonight to preach the whole thing, so you're getting the abbreviated version. What are the benefits of this being lifted up? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. How do you get saved? You don't have to work to get it. You just got to believe the one who did the work. Is that good news? Really, Numbers 21 is not just Israel's story. It's our story. It's your story. It is a story of sin. They rebelled against God. It was a story of judgment. Those fiery serpents may seem like a drastic act, but it was just what they deserved for offending a holy God. It is a story of grace because God provided an undeserved way of salvation, but it is also a story of faith. God provided the way of salvation, but to receive the salvation, you had to look to the lifted 
serpent to receive the benefit of what God provided. Likewise, we have rebelled against God in sin. We all have been bitten by guilt and will inevitably die if left to ourselves. But God at the cross provided an undeserved way of salvation. But to get it, you got to look to the one who was lifted up. You can't look to the church for salvation because the church can't save you. You can't look to the preacher for salvation. The preacher can't save you. You can't look to your good works to save you. Your good works can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Giving money can't save you. Being involved in ministry can't save you. But if you look to the one who was lifted up, you shall Receive everlasting life. Everlasting life that starts now and lasts forever. See, there are three truths about God you need to know. First, God is holy. It means he's holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's totally separated, morally perfect, infinitely beyond us. If I was explaining Holiness to my seven-year-old, I'd say it like this. God is not like us. God is just. God's holiness hates sin, and he demands that sin be punished. The justness of God means that he judges by a righteous standard, which is his own holy character. God doesn't grade on the basis of comparisons, excuses, and rationalizations. That's why you got to stop criticizing other people. It don't matter if you better than other people. We all still fall short. Here's the good news. God is love. Think of it this way and I'm done. You're a criminal. You have lived your life committing one crime after another. On the run from justice. Set in your ways. But the long arm of the law finally catches up to you. You are arrested. Charged, tried, convicted, and sentenced. And it's a just sentence. Death penalty. You know it. You know all you've done. They charge you with some stuff. They don't know the other stuff you didn't do. It's a just sentence. There you are on death row waiting for the day of execution. You, you playing card games and checkers and stuff to pass the time, but, but none of that can blind you from the reality that judgment day is coming. You try to distract yourself by listening to footsteps and voices as they are on the other side of your cell. That doesn't help. Until one day you hear the footsteps 
and they stop outside your cell. The door swings open, and in walks the judge who sentenced you. He showed up personally to tell you you're going to be set free. He sentenced you to death because that's what justice demanded. But since that day in court, his heart has been going out to you. And he found a way to execute justice and set you free at the same time. You don't know how all that works out. And frankly, you don't care. You just start packing your stuff to get out of there. That's... You just want to get out of there. But as they are leading you out the cell, they're leading someone else into the cell. You ask, who is he? And the judge says, I executed justice, but my heart went out concerned for you about a way to provide deliverance for you. And as I shared it with that man going in the cell, his heart went out for you too. And he offered to take your place. But let me be clear about one thing. He has done nothing wrong. He's the best person I know and I ought to know because he's my son. As remarkable, as incredible as that may seem, let me tell you what we call that. Good Friday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm quitting there. That's there. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For contact information, ministry updates, as well as our live Sunday morning broadcasts, please visit us online at shallow.church. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.